chapter 1 open as we come to study this evening just the last few verses. We're studying this evening verses 12 to 15. Uh, and we continue the theme from last week. Uh, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Last week we considered just really one main point from the first 11 verses of the chapter. Uh, our key thought was that God questions our priorities. God questions our priorities. And you remember how we saw how God spoke through Haggai to the remnant in Jerusalem. They had been back in Jerusalem for 18 years. They had finished rebuilding their own homes long ago. That phrase, panelled houses, means houses that are finished, houses that have the roof on, houses that are fit to dwell in. And they had then gone on to busy themselves with work and family and food and drink. And all the while, God's temple. The physical symbol of God's presence with his people lay in a heap of ruins. And we considered some of the implications of those words of God, consider your ways, some of the the implications for our own lives. How far up our priority list is public worship and witness and intake of God's word. As this new year gets underway, do our priorities align with God's priorities? And so having seen, first of all, in Haggai chapter 1, that God questions our priorities, the next thing I want us to see from this chapter this evening is that God responds to our repentance. God responds to our repentance. In chapter 1 verse 5, God says that the things with which his people have been busying themselves have been a complete disappointment for them. He talks there in verse 5 about food not satisfying and Harvests that haven't been fruitful and money has slipped through their fingers. Then if you look at verses 10 to 11. Therefore, that is because you have been busying yourselves with your own priorities. The heavens above you have withheld their dew. The earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth. In other words, friends, what God is saying here is that the difficulties that his people have been facing are not a coincidence. That if they've had a poor harvest or if the weather has not been favourable for their work, it's, it's not just an unfortunate dip in the local economy. It's not just, it doesn't just happen to be a bad spell of weather. These things have been brought about by God. They are covenant consequences for the people's sin. And this should have been no surprise to the people, at least if they were at all familiar with God's word. Not just through Haggai, but all the way back to the days of Moses. Listen to God's warning through Moses, Leviticus 26 and verse 18. God says, if in spite of this, in spite of all that God has said and promised and told them to do, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And so you see the similarity there back in Leviticus with what God says now hundreds of years later through Haggai. This was the message all through the Old Testament to God's people that they wouldn't fully enjoy the promised land if they persisted in sin. If their priorities were not God's priorities. 
And so God is saying here through Haggai that the drought and famine are consequences of their mixed up priorities. That God has sent this drought and famine to get the people to turn back to him. And so you see, friends, in a sense, this is actually mercy and love. This is God's discipline, but it's also God's compassion. That his people would turn and realize that what they need more than anything else is a life of of close fellowship with God and of obedience to God and worship of God. And in that life, God will bring blessing to his people once again. And that's exactly what repentance is. Repentance is turning. Turning away from sin and towards God. Doing a spiritual 180 degree turn in your life. Boys and girls, I don't know if any of you are in a, a boys or a girls brigade. Or maybe some of your mums and dads were in boys or, or girls brigade growing up. Uh, I went through boys brigade. Got my president's badge and queen's badge. And so sometimes in boys brigade you march. And one of the orders that you get when you march is about turn. And an about turn means that if you've been going in that direction. You turn around completely and you turn and go in the opposite direction. And that's what repentance is. It is turning away from our sin and turning in obedience to God. And wonderfully, wonderfully, that was the response to the preaching of Haggai. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, that's the governor, and Joshua, the high priest, with, notice this, with all the remnant of the people, all the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. This is the first time in the book that the people are described as the remnant. It's a significant word and it's, it's closely related in the original Hebrew to the word for turning or returning. And so perhaps what, what's being hinted at here is that these people have already physically returned. They've, they've gone from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So they've turned in that sense. But it's only now that they're turning in a spiritual sense. Notice as well that part of this turning was, verse 12, it says that they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. John and I just this past week have begun reading a book by Pastor Al Martin, The Forgotten Fear. And it explores this phrase and this theme of the Bible, the fear of God, something that all true believers should have in their lives. And one of the things that Pastor Martin says in that book is we need to realize that fear of God is not some Old Testament idea. It's not something confined uh, to God's people back then. The New Testament is, is full of examples of people who feared God, particularly in the book of Acts in the early church. At least part of what it means, friends, to fear God is that we are convicted by the the seriousness of our sin. That we see our sin for the ugly, wretched rebellion against a holy God that it is. We change our minds about our sin. It's no longer something that we're willing to tolerate or excuse or put up with. We change our mind and we change our heart and we change our behavior. That's true repentance. And that is how the people responded to Haggai. 
They changed their mind about their priorities. They realized, Haggai, Haggai speaking the truth, we should have been prioritizing the worship of God. We should have been prioritizing our witness to the nations by rebuilding the temple and restarting our worship. And because they are truly repentant, and so they turn and they change, and as we'll see in a moment, they get to work. And because that happens, look what God says to them in verse 13. Then Haggai spoke the Lord's message, and and this was the message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's the whole message. But isn't that a wonderful message? God says to his repentant people, I am with you. That's all they needed to hear. They turned to God in repentance. God turns to them with forgiveness and encouragement. One of their excuses for not building the temple undoubtedly would have been, this is too difficult. We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We don't have the time. Our enemies are too strong. And on one level, that was all true. But they had forgotten that the Lord was with them. That anything that God commands us to do, he empowers us to do. As we'll think more in a moment. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. Zechariah was also ministering at the same time, the same time as Haggai. And through Zechariah, God says to the people, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God responds to their repentance with the great assurance that he is with them, that he will provide the power and the strength that they need. There's very little concept today of men and women or even whole nations considering their difficulties as God's way of calling us to repentance. The Puritans used moments of national or economic crises or even freak weather conditions to urge people around them to turn in repentance to the God who was in control of all those things. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching a midweek about uh, fasting, how uh, during the Great Fire of London, 1666, the nation called the day of prayer. The king called for a, a time of prayer, of national mourning and repentance and prayer. That's a mindset that sadly is lacking largely in our own day, even at times in the church. I'm not saying that every time you suffer a financial loss or every time some kind of disaster hits our country that it is God calling us to repentance. But friends, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Maybe one of the things that Christians have been too shy to say over the last couple of years, is that God is in control of COVID. I know Christians on all sides of the debate and all, I know Christians holding all kinds of opinions about, uh, you know, the the severity of restrictions and seriousness of the virus and all the rest of it. I'm sure you do too. What I perhaps haven't heard very often is the mention of the fact that God has sent COVID God is in control of COVID. And amongst other things, I believe it's been a reminder to our nation, to a nation of people like us that so much, like, so much want to believe that we're in control of things. 
These last few years, God has been telling us we're not in control of things. He is. Perhaps also for a long time now, God has been allowing our nation to have our fill of clothes that wear out and food that doesn't satisfy and money that slips through our fingers so that we would see how completely unsatisfying all those things are and that we might finally turn from those things back to him in repentance. A couple of years ago, an American comedian, certainly not a a Christian comedian, uh, Louis Louis C.K. was on a chat show and he said, He said, everything is amazing right now and nobody is happy. This was before COVID, by the way. Everything is amazing right now and nobody is happy. And that just about sums it up. Look at what we have. What we have is amazing. Our communications technologies. Food from all corners of the globe appearing (coughs) in our weekly uh, shop brought to our door. Scientific advancements in health and medicine. More comfortable and luxurious living for more people than at any time in history. And yet everything is amazing and nobody seems to be very happy a lot of the time. Despite all the likes and retweets and next day deliveries, the statistics are that we're lonelier and more discontented, more distracted than we've ever been. And maybe as this new year begins, God's word is convicting us of priorities out of place, sinful attitudes that we've been tolerating, laziness in our walk with the Lord. But friends, if we repent of those things, here's the great promise for us tonight. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. And that's all we need to hear. Maybe you're convicted of a particular sin or idol in your life, something or someone that is far too much of a priority at the expense of your walk with the Lord. If you repent, I am with you, declares the Lord. Maybe there is a neighbor or a friend or a family member that you're praying for. You're you're trying to be a witness. You want to make it more of a priority in the weeks ahead that you will take opportunities to speak I am with you, declares the Lord. Maybe you're the only person, boys and girls, in your school or university or workplace, the only Christian and, and temptations to cut corners or to, <coughs> to work or act or talk like everyone else are bombarding you every day. I am with you, declares the Lord. Maybe you started a Bible reading plan this year. And you're wondering, wondering what you'll, how you'll manage when you come up on Numbers or First Chronicles. I am with you, declares the Lord, as you endeavor to make his word more of a priority in your life and become more familiar with it. Whatever you're trying to change, friends, whatever priorities God convicts you of that need to be reordered in your life, God says to repentant sinners, I am with you. So God responds to our repentance. But secondly this evening, God empowers our service. God empowers our service. Again, the main reason that God has sent Haggai to these people is because they hadn't yet rebuilt the temple. That's that's what they were to repent of first and foremost. And so having repented, look at verse 14. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And notice, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month. And that timestamp of the 24th day of the month, that tells us that they took three weeks from the time that Haggai first spoke to them. Probably those, in those three weeks, they finished up the harvest because it was harvest time. And probably also they took this time to, to plan the work that had to be done. And as soon as they had done that, they, they finally report for duty. But why is it that they show up for work at all? Well, look again at verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of both the leaders and all the people. And the word there in Hebrew, stirred up, could also be roused. It's like giving someone a shake that's been sleeping. And spiritually speaking, of course, that's exactly what God's spirit did. He, he gave God's people a shake. He, he woke them up from a spiritual stupor. See, friends, even the, the good deeds that we do can only be done by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. If we've let God's kingdom slip down our priority list, we aren't going to sort that out through doing better, trying harder, self-belief, self-determination, self-actualization. It's only going to happen by the power of God's spirit. Again, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The same God who commands us to repent and who commands us to act gives us the power to do the very things that he commands. Remember what Jesus commanded his disciples at the outset of their great mission. Jesus was about to ascend back into heaven. Jesus said to them, Acts 1 verse 4, Wait for the promise of the Father. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The power that those lowly, feeble, uneducated disciples would need would be given them. The power of the Holy Spirit to, to preach and to lead the church and to spread the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That we all have our different gifts, as, we, as we've been thinking about a few times over the last few months, but those gifts are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And notice Paul says there, for the common good. In other words, for the good of others, for the good of the church, for the glory of God's name. That's a point that sometimes gets overlooked in all the discussion and debate about the Holy Spirit, particularly perhaps amongst those who are more interested in the more dramatic gifts, prophecy and speaking in languages and so on. Those things were never for just my own personal enjoyment. It's not just so that I feel closer to God. Any spiritual gift we have, friends, is for the common good and for the glory of God's name. And so, friends, what God commands us to do, he empowers us to do. He gives us the help that we need, the power that we need to serve him. This is why preachers have to plead with God every week that not only would we be able to preach faithfully, but that God would work powerfully by his spirit in all of our lives. Otherwise, preachers are wasting their breath. 
And whatever gift you possess, whatever your role in the church, you need to plead for the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit as we, as we use those gifts. As we teach in Sabbath school, as we organize fellowship, as we lead in, in CY, as we lead our children in the home. You read of the great revivals of the past, the Protestant Reformation or New England in the 1700s. And what happens when the Spirit of God stirs up the people of God sometimes is, is not normal. People en masse mourning their sin, fearing the Lord as these people did. Coming en masse to hear God's word proclaimed. Even demanding changes to the laws of the land to give more glory to God. If there is some change of priority that God is laying upon your heart, friends, even on a personal level, pray for his spirit to empower your service. We need to pray that for our own church, for the needs we have in the years to come. The leaders God provides would be men filled with the spirit. That the decisions we make would be spirit-led decisions. That the, the witness we carry out in this town would be spirit-empowered witness. And this is where God is so gracious to us, friends. He has every right to question our priorities, to rebuke our sin. But then he also responds to our repentance and he empowers our service. He gives us the power that we need to do the very things that he commands us to do. That's how the temple in Jerusalem was finally rebuilt. God empowered his people to serve him in that way. The ministry career of Haggai is so encouraging. We know hardly anything about Haggai the man. His, his ministry, if it lasted just from the time that the message came here in Haggai chapter 1 to the end of, of the book, then his ministry lasted only six months or less. His little book is only two chapters. Isaiah's is 66, Jeremiah's is 52. But God used Haggai, friends. Haggai saw one of the most positive responses to the preaching of God's word in the whole Old Testament era. That in itself is a lesson for us that small ministries can still be strong ministries. You, you don't have to be incredibly gifted, well-known, super impressive to be used of God. A day of small things, as many believe we're living in, can also be a day of great things. It only takes one repentant sinner for the angels in heaven to rejoice. In 1857, in a small country church in County Antrim, the minister of four young men, James McQuilkin, Jeremiah McNeely, Robert Carlyle and John Wallace, their minister appealed in a service to, to the young people of the church to give their lives more fully into the service of God. Feeling convicted, those four young friends began meeting regularly for prayer in an old schoolhouse near Kells. They prayed for revival in their own congregation and the surrounding district. A few months later, that little prayer meeting had swelled to 50 people. Not long after that, there were 16 prayer meetings held every night, adding up to about 100 prayer meetings every week in one church. Not long after that, revival was being experienced up and down Ulster. Hundreds of thousands of people perhaps converted because four young men did what God told them to do. And in response, God surged through the country by his reviving power. 
You don't know what one prayer meeting, one conversation with your neighbour, one sermon preached could lead to if it's in the hands of God the Holy Spirit. It's so encouraging. I don't know if I said this last week or not, but it was so encouraging to see so many of you gathering in one form or another, either in person or online, for our prayer, our time of fasting and prayer last weekend. And may God be pleased to use those prayers and answer those prayers when and how he sees fit with the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church. So God responds to our repentance. God empowers our service. And thirdly and finally, friends, God glorifies his own name. God glorifies his own name. Look at verse 8. It's really the key verse of the chapter. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, friends, God's chief aim in all that he does is his own glory. He deserves all praise from all people. He deserves our worship, our service, our delight. He is good enough for it. He is wonderful enough for it. What does that really mean, though, that God would be glorified? It's maybe a phrase that we hear people praying or, or using every so often, but what does it really mean? In a few weeks' time, Hannah and I hope to attend the marriage celebration of a family member who actually got married almost two years ago. They got married right at the start of lockdown. They're finally getting to celebrate their marriage with friends and family, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, But on a typical wedding day, the wedding days that we're sort of more used to, uh, in a sense, on a wedding day, you glorify the bride and groom. Now, I'm not saying you bow down and worship them, but we we gather round them. We, We celebrate them. When the couple comes out of the church building, all the cameras are turned on them. All the attention is on them. Everyone wants to see the bride's dress. Everyone wants to shake the groom's hand. And so attention and celebration is focused upon them. Or to give a different example, maybe you've had opportunity to travel and see some of the, the truly great sights of the world. Some of you have maybe been to the Andes in Peru or the Swiss Alps or Niagara Falls, some great and awesome and beautiful sight. Maybe for some of you it's just the, the coastline of Donegal is a glorious and awesome enough sight. Uh, well, when we see those things, our, our focus, our attention is fixed upon these amazing sights. And we point out what we love about them. And we just sometimes stand back in silent awe of the beauty of them. In a sense, we, uh, we give them some glory, if you like. Well, friends, the God who spoke the Andes and the Niagara Falls into existence... The God who is sovereign over every blade of grass and every drop of water. This God commands us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. He is most worthy of our attention and our celebration and our awe-filled worship. The people to whom Haggai was sent had fallen for the lie. The same lie that we can be tempted to fall for today. They had been tempted to fall for the lie that we will be more delighted that my life will be more enjoyable 
with more stuff or more popularity or more money, more for me. In other words, if I live for my own glory. The problem with that is, friends, that we are not anywhere near glorious enough. We're not worth all that time and effort because we're not God. It's nice to get that attention and celebration on your wedding day. It would just be weird if you got it every other day. You imagine if your friends and family turned up at your doorstep some random Monday morning and say, Oh, let me see what you're wearing today. We don't deserve it. It wouldn't feel right. That's why so many celebrities who do get that type of attention, who do get people asking them what they're wearing at big parties or following them to their houses or just going nuts when they see them, so many of them are miserable. It's because they're getting glory that they don't really deserve. One preacher has said, the more your world is about you, the more angry and tired you'll be. The more it's not about you, the more free you'll be. Friends, we exist to make much of, to glorify God. And then everything else can find its place and be enjoyed in the right way. Food, clothing, sport and friendship, family and marriage and All that goes with those things, all those things can be enjoyed to the glory of God. We recognise all of them as gifts that he gives to be enjoyed in their place. 1 Corinthians 10 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's why we give thanks for our food. It's why we should give thanks for everything else that we have on a daily or regular basis as well. Good gifts that God has given but not the main priority of our lives, friends. When God is the main priority of our lives, when glorifying God is the main priority of our lives, then he says, I will be with you. Our concern today, of course, is no longer with building a a, a physical building in Jerusalem. Our concern today is with the Savior who came and died outside the walls of Jerusalem and fulfilled the whole purpose of that temple building in the first place. What was the name given to Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. See, that physical temple was just a symbol of the fact that God had always promised to come and dwell with his people. Jesus himself said, destroy this temple And I will rebuild it in three days. Talking not about the Jerusalem temple, but about his own body. And about the fact that he was going to offer that body on the cross in place of his people's sin. And in doing so, friends, he was making it possible for us to spend an eternity of fellowship with God. An eternity of enjoying God. An eternity of glorifying God with our worship and with everything else that there will be to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. In these last days, God has spoken to us, not just through prophets and preachers, but through his son, our savior and our redeemer. And if we want to know how to glorify God, we look at the example that he has set. If we want to glorify God in our work, consider Christ who set his face toward Jerusalem. Determined to do the work for which his father had sent him. If we want to know how to defeat sin, we look at Christ and 
How he thwarted the temptations of Satan by knowing God's word and calling it to mind when Satan came and tempted him. If we want to, if we want to know how to study God's word, we look at Christ who even from his earliest days was giving himself to fulfilling Psalm 119, making God's law his chief delight. And he was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Friends, we dwell with God through Jesus Christ. His very spirit in our lives today is evidence and testimony to that fact. He has done everything for us. He's made repentance possible for us. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us each and every day. Jesus Christ says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So let me ask you. Is your top priority bringing glory to yourself, building your own little kingdom here on earth? Or is your top priority bringing glory to God, exploring and declaring and worshipping him for what he has done for you through the life and death and resurrection of Christ? In that, you will find your chief delight. God says to each of us this evening, consider your ways that I may be glorified. Amen.